I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Giacomo Conterno of the Aldo Conterno Winery in Monforte on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? It's a pleasure to be here. Very nice to have you here. So you're Giacomo Conterno, but you're at the Aldo Conterno <laughs> Winery, which I, uh, for some people will take some... No, for more than some people. Because uh, Conterno in Monforte is like, uh, it's a surname like Schmidt. <laughs> so there's a, there are a lot of people uh, that are, the name is Conterno. And uh, uh, the original family my family and the Giacomo Conterno winery family uh, was the one that uh, started, well, the, the, the oldest document of uh, our family is a bill dated uh, 1770. It's a bill of Barolo. But of course, as I told you, there are many other families named Conterno. The only relationship in terms of blood is uh, between the Podera do Conterno, my uh, family, and Giacomo Conterno. And all the other Conternos are very good producers, but we don't have relationship in terms of uh, blood and uh, family. And uh, so when my father and my uncle uh, Giovanni, they used to work together under the Giacomo Conterno winery, for us, you know, things were very different because after World War II, there were only three wineries in Monforte. So there was less confusion. There was uh, Zabaldano, my family, uh, and uh, another um, family called Odero, that I think he had also a relationship with the, the other famous of there in, uh, in Santa Maria. And but Zabaldano was the famous uh, for Barolo Chinato, the pharmacy family. Zabaldano was absolutely one of the most uh, famous producers of Barolo Chinato. And uh, so, you know, in that period, uh, there were many wine growers, but uh, less wineries compared to today. And, uh, of course, uh, then uh, little by little, Thanks to the fact that uh, many people discovered the Barolo, many wine growers that maybe they use also to produce wine, but they didn't export. They started to be more well known. And uh, we were lucky because uh, as uh, uh, my grandfather was born in Argentina, so there was a possibility for us already in that period to export. The only problem is that sometimes, you know, we were a little bit afraid because uh, on the, the port of Genoa, 
was the place in which we uh, ship the wines. And we were always a little bit afraid because on the, in that period it takes a lot of time for the trip. And sometimes uh, instead of the wine in the barrel, there was just the water. Maybe some sailors were going to drink it. <laughs> and so you were always afraid until we were, they, they received the papers that they say, no, there was wine inside. Okay, <laughs> But uh, no, it's, uh, to me, it's fantastic still today to do this job because I always think that when you have the possibility to born in one, in one place, live in this place, and maybe die in the same place, is an opportunity that uh, few people have. Giacomo Quintero, the person, was born in Argentina. Yes. Then, uh, when he was uh, very young, I think uh, four or five years old, um, his mother passed away, unfortunately. And so my great-grandfather said, uh, I'm alone with uh, all this uh, fam my family. And, uh, back in Italy. Back in Italy, yeah. Why not? <laughs> I'm here maybe for that for that reason. And uh, but there uh, there is a still a big uh, Piedmontese community in uh, Argentina. So it's nice to know that uh, there are some roots also there. So you were able to export Barolo to Argentina through family connections in that period. Yes, in yes, the yes. 19th no, century. Yes, and the end of the 19th century. Yes. Then of course when when my father because of course they still have brothers there. But then when my great-grandfather came back home, of course, there was more focus here. You never know what happened in life. Maybe my grandfather, uh, when he was very young, uh, talked that his destiny was in Argentina. Then there was this said uh, for her mother, and we are here. If maybe this didn't happen today, we cannot speak here. Maybe we could be in, uh, in Tucumán or <laughs> in other places. So Giacomo, your namesake was also your grandfather. Yes. And he had two sons, Giovanni and Aldo. That's it, yes. Also other two sisters, but they were not uh, involved in the winery. And so my uncle Giovanni and my father Aldo, they worked together for many years. So your dad actually went to America for a while. Yes, because uh, when he was uh, in the beginning of the 50s, um, he has this uh, uncle quite old and quite rich, but if I'm not wrong, he didn't have a um, family. So he asked my father because, uh, to go in the United States because his idea was to uh, run a winery in Sonoma. That in that period, you know, was absolutely, you know, intriguing. And when my father received the letter saying, Aldo, would you like to come in the United States? And he said, America. For a young boy of the 50s, when in Monforte we have two cars for one village, in America we have two cars for one family. So I think my father arrived in America before his letter <laughs> because he was absolutely happy and he came to the United States. But uh, then uh, someone um, suggested him to have the green card. That was uh, an issue also in that period. Uh, he, they suggested him to join the army. And he said, okay, why not? I'm going also to learn more English. I'm going to be more part of this, uh, of the U.S. And I was very proud. The timing, in my opinion, was not perfect because there was also the, the, the Korea uh, War. But uh, so he spent uh, one year <clears throat> in Seoul. And then when he came back, uh, the uncle was very old uh, and 
the project ended. Uh, but of course, he was in America and he spends other three, four years. I still have, uh, about two weeks ago, I just received the visit of uh, the son of his boss. It was fantastic. He showed me about the salary for one week, if I'm not wrong, was $170 per week. In that period, I think was was the was, because my my father was uh, used to work for a, for a, a company that sells uh, food and uh, other things, so it was like like an agent, you know. And uh, I see this paper and and I see uh, the hours written by by my father. I recognize his signature. You know, it was it was something that uh, hit me a little bit in terms of emotion. You know, it was fantastic. But uh, then, of course. Uh, after three, four, five years, he, most of the time he lived uh, in Berkeley because he had another uncle at the restaurant uh, one and a half kilometers from the university. And so I, th I think he enjoyed the life during that period. And then he came back and uh, restart what was always in his mind because his idea was not to stay in America, but to have this incredible experience, you know, to go in U.S., for a Piedmontese uh, guy in the 50s was to just see what will happen in Italy after 40 years. It's like a machine for the future. And uh, I think was uh, unique for him. And the other big advantage, when he came back in Italy, he, he has the possibility to understand and speak English. That mm -hmm. In that period was really uh, rare. And I think ahead of the game because he probably spoke some Korean too. So for the yeah, export yeah, market, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. So for now, uh, when when we when we talk uh, with the, the South Korea, that is an, a country that is absolutely increasing. I like to say also that. <laughs> but that uncle in California had died as well. Yes, and so the the, the project ended. But the, of course, for as I told you, for for my father was an incredible experience. He he never came back in U.S. Never. Because I think uh, the idea he had in that period was so, you know, uh, deep in, in his heart. And he said, that's that kind of America. And my, my father was always a great supporter of America. When I, I remember there was maybe some TV show that they say something against, uh, you know, some specific policy. My father said, no. America uh, is America. And they always told us, as a guy, you have to love this country because uh, I understand the things there that uh, they completely changed my life. So I was really a true believer of U.S. And I think that uh, this is one of, one of the reasons why he always uh, asked this idea to also with us. He said, uh, visit the United States, try to understand a lot about these people because... Uh, uh, I met uh, uh, this culture when I was very young and it changed my life. And now, by chance, it was not, not, not uh, absolutely wrong because the United States is one of the biggest markets for Barolo. So maybe <laughs> you already knew something in that period. <laughs> but what was your dad like? I mean, uh, when you recall him? <clears throat> my father was a typical uh, Piedmontese. Uh, he liked to enjoy life, friends. And uh, it was a typical father of a generation that was not used, you know, to involve the kids like uh, we are seeing now. To me, it was more like a mentor. So your dad was born in 1931. Yes. And when did he get married about? Uh, 1963. Oh, so right in that period of time where 
he split with his brother and started his own yeah, line was, like that area. Yes, the, the yes, is it, they started to talk about splitting in beginning of, of the sixties, but uh, Poder Aldo Conteno was started uh, in uh, nineteen sixty-nine. <laughs> but uh, uh, there are a lot of bottles of Aldo Conterno nineteen thirty-one. Uh, of the 50s, uh, the 40s, and many people uh, asked me, but if they split it in 1969, how this could... But when they split it, they also split it, the wine they had uh, in the cellar. In that period, it was very common to have uh, very old vintages of, of Barolo in damagens, you know, this 54 uh, liters big uh, bottle. And uh, so they, all those vintages that were there, so when they split it, uh, my uncle uh, took the right to continue as Giacomo Conterno and my father took the right to bottle all the old vintages as Podera da Conterno that they were split during, they were divided when they decided to have to separate uh, destiny, you know. So a 55 Giacomo Conterno and a 55 Aldo Conterno are essentially the same wine? Not the same wine because uh, they used to buy uh, also grapes from different crew. They used to rent. So it could be, uh, of course, the same vintage, but maybe coming in that period, you, you have to consider that there was not the same crew concept we have now. So in that period, it was much more common to blend different positions. So it could happen that uh, maybe some damages were part of a, of a crew and other damages were part of another crew. So we have the same vintage, but two different terroirs. But they would have both been labeled the same. They would have said Barolo, not with... You know. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it would be, you would have to know from the taste or where it was in the cellar. Yeah. Do you think your dad preferred certain crews at that time? Well, my father, as I told you, was influenced by my, my grandfather. And... Uh, and um, my grandfather had two, two places in his, one was Serralunga and the other was Busia. And so when the two brothers split, it was easy for them to, to decide where to go. My father was, was really in love uh, with uh, Romirasco uh, since, uh, since the beginning. I remember we rented uh, Romirasco for, for many years and finally being a very good friend of the banks, we, we had the chance to, we have the chance to, to, to buy this land. In uh, 1980, right? Yes. Uh, and, um, and I remember his love for Romirasco was, 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 was incredible. And, and in fact, uh, we produce a wine called Gran Busia, that is a Reserva. And uh, when he had the possibility to do the blend, because in the beginning it was just a blend of or Chicala or Colonello, but when, when, he, when we bought the Romirasco, his idea was, I will have 70% Romirasco, 15 Chicala, 15 Colonello, because Romirasco must be the backbone of the, of the so I, I remember. And I can understand that we have still a map dated 1875 that shows that the Romirasco was considered one of the best crew of the region there. And uh, I'm very proud to own uh, this map but much more happy to hone the hill, <laughs> this is speaking. So today that's part of Busia. Yes. And he basically put his winery across the street from Romerasco. Yes, yes, yes. And th th there is a still the Romerasco house uh, where I live. That is the, the house that uh, gave the name to the, to the hill. And this house uh, built more than 200 uh, years ago. 
So the first Grand Busia was in the 70s, 74? Well, 70. Okay. But uh, very few bottles. Um, we can consider 71 as uh, the start, but there are also some 70. And that is today a blend of Romerasco, Chicala, and Colonello? It's always 70% uh, Romerasco, 15% Chicala, and 15% Colonello. But you have to consider that uh, uh, in the end of the 90s, uh, me and my two brothers, uh, we decided to, let's say, change a little bit uh, the, our approach. Uh, it's very difficult today to drink uh, a bad wine. There are good wines everywhere. And the 90s were the golden age for wine. Uh, everywhere. If we, I think if we go back uh, uh, 30 or 40 years, 30% of the wineries disappears. There is a huge number of wineries that started to bottle before. Maybe, they, of course, they were wine growers, but they prefer more to sell grapes or to sell to some domestic market. But the 90s were the moment in which uh, there was a big wake up in terms of uh, investors, that they were more seriously uh, interested in developing projects with, with wine, in terms also of customers, wine lovers. And I think, uh, as happened with in all the other things in life, technology played a huge role because internet started in that. And so for people, it was very easy to share, to exchange. And the wine consultant started in the, in the 90s. Think uh, uh, before for a wine grower, the only possibility was to hire a full-time wine consultant. Too expensive. I can, today, I can, I can uh, ask for some advice, but the wine consultant could maybe could take care of 60, 70, even more wineries. So the 90s uh, shaped completely this our area. present. Yes, yeah. I think they shaped every area. But in terms of that shift from small grower to small domain, mm. that really happened here in a big way. Yes, yes. yes. No, I, I think that uh, uh, many uh, wine growers, uh, they understood that they had a, a possibility. The market changed there was much more, uh, you know, attention. So many, many wine growers decided or to hire a winemaker or to do by themselves. And so in the 90s, it was clear for us that uh, it was an incredible moment also for export. We had the Italian lira and as a currency was stronger than any army. We could attack any, any, any country. It was unbelievable. Today with Euro is a little bit more complicated. But the, I remember the export was crazy. You just say... I have produced a, a new wine. Okay, the importer said, send me 6,000, 7,000 bottles. So it was, was a thing that I never seen in my life uh, before and also now is different. And so many wineries, uh, many good wines. And we understood that quality was not enough. So was the time more and more for identity. And identity means that people like me, people hate me, but I hope everybody recognizes me. <laughs> this is a little bit the, the idea of the identity. So we cannot please everybody. And we don't have to please everybody. I think we must be a little bit selfish because you have to be free to decide what to do. But identity is the only way for you to, to tell your story, to deliver your message. So we used to produce in... Um, in the end of the 90s, we used to produce 200,000 bottles with 25 hectares. And uh, we, we were in front of a big cross because, as I told you, the 
the economy was incredible. Remember, we had the dot-com in that period. So there was a lot of cash. People were investing a lot in, in wine. And America exploded uh, in terms of the market. And we started uh, to ship a lot of, of Barolo. Uh, but we, we noticed that <clears throat> we had 200,000 bottles. Our uh, winery, our cellar is 5,000 square meters. So we have room for maybe four or 500,000 bottles. And that many wineries in that period, they decided to grow. So if we go back uh, 20 years, uh, many wineries are, are tiny compared to today. But we decided to do the contrary. Why? Because uh, we noticed that just to produce a correct wine, or what we could say a safe wine, <laughs> that, that, that everybody could agree that is nice, but maybe they don't feel the real soul, was not good for us. And the idea... When we were in front of this cross, we said maybe we could buy new land we, because we, have, we had a lot of space. 5,000 square meters is, is a big space. Many people told us in that period, ah, you are three brothers. It's time to expand. Everybody are. And more they told us to do that, the more we were convinced to do the contrary. And so we said, let's do the contrary. Few bottles, but be 100% in charge. Uh, I'm not against wine consultant. They are doing a great job, but... We have a family that produces wine since many generations. And for us, it was very important to put our ends and to be 100% responsible in a good or in a bad way. Yeah, because uh, you, you never know. But in any case, it's my wine. And uh, it's my identity. It's my story. So basically, you stopped buying in grapes. No, no. The night is, when, when we arrived, the first vintage that uh, my two brothers that are older than me did uh, was 1989. And then already in that period, when my brothers arrived, we decided to focus. We used to rent also some lands, but uh, we decided to focus very much on our 25 hectares. And then, as I told you, there was this golden age of the 90s. And in the end of the 90s, we said, uh, okay, uh, we could uh, maybe continue with 200,000. We could buy more land. We could rent more land. The prices were not like today. <laughs> so it was more easy for, for a winery to expand a little bit. Their, their lens. But then the idea, uh, as I told you, was opposite. Just a few bottles and 100% uh, control. So your dad had a preference for Mikke? He liked it? Yes, yes. Mikke was always a uh, kind of Nebbiolo that was in his, in his heart. He said that he likes very much the aromatic side of the Mikke, and I, I, I totally agree with you, so, this idea of my father. So what is the soil makeup of Romarasco, Chicala, Colonel? Monforte, Castiglione, but in particular Bussia, because Bussia is the last district of Monforte on the border between Barolo and Castiglione Falletto. And Bussia is really bland. I think that one of the reasons why my grandfather and then my father were really touched by this uh, region is that uh, you have a really a mix of the different terroirs. In fact, uh, uh, we have three hills uh, in Bussiat. The three highest hills are Colonello, Cicala, and um, uh, Romirasco. And these three hills, uh, they, they represent a little bit uh, the Barolo region. For example, Colonello has a lot of sand, magnesium, manganese, so more close to the Barolo Lamora area. Chicala is the typical uh, Busia area with more this uh, little bit of clay, iron. Uh, it's a very steep at the hill and it represents very much this a bit more male side of the Barolo. And Romirascu is very close to the Chicala as the time of soil, 
but with a little bit of this uh, magnesium, more typical from the Colonello, that uh, offers this spicy taste in the Romerasco. That is the reason why we like to have 70% in our Reserva Granvusia. And uh, the idea of the Granvusia is to honor the old-fashioned way of blending the different crew. So in Granvusia, we have... Uh, Cicala, 15%, Colonello, 15%, Romerasco, 70%. But just to give you an idea of what we have changed. Uh, before the 2001, uh, the Gran Busia, uh, we blended the three crew after the first fermentation. And then we, we did uh, four or five weeks of, of uh, skin contact. And we used to produce 10, 11,000 bottles. Uh, starting from uh, the 2001, uh, we decided to have one barrel dedicated only for the Gran Busia. We harvest the same day, the three crews. So we co-ferment, uh, no temperature controlled uh, fermentation, a skin contact of two, sometimes two and a half months. So it's a completely different kind of approach, but why? Because we want to use this freedom to be more and more uh, close to the concept of the Reserva. And I think the, the combination of these three hills, that they represent a little bit of the mix of the different rewards in the Barolo area, helps a lot to uh, us to, to reach this, this goal. And uh, so the only sad part is that as we have to harvest only one day, instead of 10, 11,000 bottles, we are around 3,600. <laughs> so it, this was a, a price that we have to pay. But as I told you, uh, when we could be more focused, uh, we are happy to pay this price. So when you did the blending of the different parcels after the ferment, and then when you did co-ferment, when you started that, of the same parcels, in the mouth, and the nose, what did you see? I think, uh, I think the advantage to co-ferment is also that, uh, and decide to have more than two months of skin contact, forced us to select the best berries, to be even more strict. And, uh, and uh, in that case, uh, you can really also focus on uh, in, in each hill of the plots that you think in that vintage could better perform together with the other two hills. So uh, before, of course, was absolutely nice too, but uh, maybe it was more um, an engineer blend. Uh, the concept of Reserva now starts from the first day of the harvest. Since the beginning, one day you decide to harvest part of the Romirasco, part of the chicken, and then you co-ferment. So it's a real fusion, more than a blend after the first fermentation. Then before we fermented and still, and then the second ferment. No, now one barrel dedicated to that first and second fermentations. But in the 80s, though, Grand Busia would have, and some of the other Barola would have been fermented in steel. Yes, yes, yes. yes. But no longer for the Grand Busia. No, 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 no. 2001, we decided to offer more layers to enter another dimension, maybe more old-fashioned dimension, uh, respect to the to the nineties, uh, and this was the, the idea, and we are happy to to continue. But for the other crew, they do the first fermentation in steel. They they do four or five uh, weeks of skin contact, and then the second fermentation in a big barrel. The ground will see since the beginning in a big barrel, no temperature control. So we take also sometimes a risk because it's eight years, the total work of the Gran Busia. It could happen that after six years, we called the importer and said, ah, sorry, uh, I told you about the Gran Busia, but uh, no, there's no Gran Busia. But people pay for that. Um, my Gran Busia is not cheap. This is the reason why, for example, in 2002 and 2003, that for us was, were very complicated uh, vintages. In both vintages, we tried to produce the Barolo 
We aged the Barolo for more than three years. When it was time to bottle, we didn't bottle. And, and, but uh, this is part of the game. Honestly speaking, Piedmont is in a very, very good position now. From 2004 to 2015, we were very lucky. Uh, we have different styles. Uh, some people are saying that maybe 14 is a little bit more challenging. I, ag I agree, but uh, if the people did the right selection in 14, trust me, we will see big surprises. Few, 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 few bottles, but big surprises. So I'm not the one so pessimist about 14. But we have different styles. Uh, let's say um, five, uh, uh, six, uh, eight, uh, uh, 10, uh, 13, 14, we could consider a little bit more classic vintages. Cooler summers, late harvest, uh, this incredible brightness of the acidity, very big tanning structure. Then we have uh, like seven, uh, nine, 11, 15, more ripe. So this means more generous, maybe more easy also for people that they want to approach to a barrel a little bit younger. So some vintages like 10, or six, you have to wait 10, 15 years, even more, to really, really have uh, the balance. And these are incredible vintages that I'm sure they will always uh, tell about the greatness of Barolo, but you cannot drink young. There are vintages like 11 that you can approach younger, and in my opinion, it's a fantastic opportunity. They could live 10, 15 years with no problem, but you can start just to drink down two, three years from now, and you will be more than pleased. And 12, what we are having now is something in between is uh, an expression of a ripe vintage, but together with a very interesting tanning structure. And honestly speaking, I like vintages like 12 because they give me more space. And are always vintages like that, that in my opinion, build the reputation of a winery and are much more intriguing. So I'm having a lot of fun now with the 12. Do you see a pattern in what vintages end up being Grambusia? Because you don't make it every year. No, no. But the Grambusia now... Every, every year we try. The thing is that after eight years, we decide or not to bottle. But we must do now every year. And this gives us much more sense because if I have to co-ferment and I have that barrel only for Grambusia, I must try every year. And then uh, if things are uh, so, so bad, uh, we will not bottle. And we declassify as... Uh, we cannot put in the crew. We cannot do nothing. We classify as a table wine, and uh, because if, if if it is wrong, it's wrong. So it's not that we could do something in between. Is that so, true? Yeah. No, of course. Do you keep for the family, or are you? <laughs> for the family, sometimes those wines we prefer. Well, when you know when you are disappointed with Grambusia, is a big pain in, in your heart. You prefer to <laughs> get it out of the house. <laughs> yes, but in any case, uh, honestly speaking, we are talking about bottles that they cost. We are talking about bottles that, uh, in which we, we hope people will invest. So the minimum, I'm not here to tell you, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sacrifice. No, it's part of the game. Uh, we are lucky that there are people that invest and we have always to prove them that they, they do a right investment. And this doesn't mean that they have 100% to like the wine, but they have 100% to understand that I offer all my, I put all my effort to produce that. So. Every vintage we try, and some vintages then during the journey we understand that uh, was not the case and we don't bottle. Honestly speaking, we also did uh, in 14, because in my opinion, very, very few, but we are very happy about the 14. Oh, so you're going to make a Grand Brucie in 14? Yes. Because it's a difficult year. It's a difficult year, but as I told you before, are more 
challenging vintages in which you we have a uh, incredible example for many producers that in challenging vintages then they they produce a masterpiece so do you see a pattern though in which years have worked out or not in terms of weather maybe more classic vintages like was the 10, 8, and 14, because honestly speaking, Fontaine was the weather that was very common 40 years ago, rain and not so hot. So I think that uh, the Reserva has more chance in, 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 classic, uh, in classic vintages. For example, we didn't uh, produce the, the 11. We tried, but during the journey, we, we said, okay, maybe it's better not to produce the Reserva. But we are so pleased about uh, the Romerasco, Chicale, and Colonnello 11. So is it the case that the Colonnello, Romerasco, and Chicala are temperature-controlled ferments? Yes. Grambusi is not, though. No. And so in a warmer year, you're getting higher sugars. Yeah, higher sugars. Maybe you, you could have uh, more uh, difficulties also in the cellar because the temperature of uh, 11 was one of the warmest autumn we had. So there are many things that could uh, change a little bit the situation and maybe push us to go to not produce the Grand Goussia. But in any case, we did the uh, harvest. Now, now the barrel is uh, somewhere. <laughs> uh, we, we will not produce the 11. But in any case, now every year we, we, we have to do that because we have to harvest all as to start the reserva in the vineyards. Do the parcels for Grand Boussia tend to be the same within those vineyards? Well, uh, it's 70% of Romierasco, 15 Chicala, but you have to consider, for example, Romierasco is more than three hectares, Chicala is more than three hectares. So now, with the production we do, uh, uh, Chicala we produce five, 6,000 bottles, Romierasco five, 6,000 bottles, and with more than three hectares, we have a potential of 17,000, 18,000 bottles, just to give you the idea. But, and so we have a lot of, of, of room to decide also the plot for the Grand Boussia because in total Grand Boussia is around 3,000 bottles now. So usually the Grand Boussia comes from the top of Romirasco, the top of Colonnello, the top of Chicala because we think that uh, it's the steepest part of the hill with more wind, so more LTOs in terms of the skin because when you decide to do a long maceration, you trust your skin. Because if you have a skin so-so, you do a short maceration. So is it true that in the windier parcels, you're getting thicker skins? The humidity changed completely. And so uh, the skin reacts with the humidity. And just after a storm is the part that get, is drying before. Okay? So uh, it's very important, the wind. Uh, and uh, and, and uh, you, what you said is, in my opinion, absolutely right. There's less chance that you're going to have a little bit of rot on the skin and it might be we, 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 we tend always to have late harvest. Mm -hmm. This is one of the reasons why also we lose a lot of grapes. <laughs> so for Grand Boussier, you either bottle it or you don't bottle it. For the three component crews, I feel like sometimes some of them are bottled, but not all three, and sometimes all three. Or... I give you an idea with the vintage. 2004. 2004, I consider a fantastic move. And it's fantastic because they never close down the wines. I don't know if you agree with me, but always when you taste it, there are some vintages like six, like 10 now. <laughs> you taste the wine and 04 is always there. <laughs> so generous, so floral. And uh, in 04, unfortunately, the hail and hail storm destroyed the Chicala production. So also we didn't produce the Gran Vucia. Many people told us, but you didn't produce 2002 Grand Boussia, no 2003. Why no 2004? Because I said, the, the people that uh, follow the Grand Boussia, they know the Grand Boussia is the fusion of the three crew. 
So if now I miss the, the Cicala and uh, uh, I say, ah, okay, but in any case, I will produce Gran Busia, I will betray the concept of Gran Busia. So people, they know that when it comes, we have a good vintage and the three crew there. The other example is 2007, for example. We didn't produce the Gran Busia since the beginning, like the four, because the Romirasco was hurted by the hail. So in that case, even the, the, the first day could not start because if I miss uh, one crew, I cannot do the co-fermentation of the three. So this is why, why sometimes you don't see my... Because unfortunately, the hail, <laughs> the, with the global warming, uh, the hail storms now are very aggressive. In 11, it was different. We tried to produce the Grabusia, but then we said no. So do the grapes look different in the different crews? Like when you go well, through? Well, mainly our Mickey. And there are muscle selection, so they mix. Honestly speaking, there's not a huge difference, but uh, maybe the soil could play a role in the consistency sometimes uh, of the skin uh, because uh, the soils react in a different way uh, with the climate. So there could be. But of course, the Mickey is Mickey, and there is not this huge uh, difference among. And then the three hills are 50 meters far. Corobirasco, <laughs> Cicale, and this is the other amazing part. Just a few meters, they completely change the situation. I think they, the grape outside look, uh, as I told you, quite the same, but maybe inside. Because of the reaction of the soil, things they could be very different. In fact, usually the colonello is much more floral, more quick fruit, more the expression of the sandy soil. Chicala is a very steep at the hill, uh, which um, the, the soil is more poor than, uh, than Colonello. So the roots, they really have to dig to find water. So they explore much more layers underground. And this means much more micro element in contact with the roots. And in fact, the Chicala is a little bit more, let's say, male, earthy, leather, dark fruits, a touch of balsamic. And then there is the Romirasco that is mainly Chicala soil with this slightly magnesium that I think is the secret of this incredible spice and dense fruit. And uh, so there's, uh, of course, an interaction with the soil, but more not from the shape of the, of, of the berries, but inside, yes. So I've always been curious, with the three crews and then Grambusia, are the lengths of mallow different? Having the Grambusia for a longer uh, time in contact with the skin also helps the mallow more. So it could happen that the Grambusia starts the mallow before the other because uh, skin means richness, the seeds and, 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 and all together. So uh, I think sometimes the Grambusia has more opportunity to end the, the mallow before, but it's impossible really to predict. Also because we don't add the bacteria, everything is natural. We, we use indigenous yeast, uh, indigenous bacteria. So you wait and knowing that if it is a good vintage, Things they will they will come. Spring is incredible because sometimes when you don't have the mallow in autumn, you know we are under uh, we we are really feeling uh, the nature. And you know why in spring usually the, the mallow start because in spring uh, the vegetation moves, and so bacteria are part of this world. And uh, as many times uh, when the mallow doesn't doesn't start in in the end of, uh, of December or springtime, puff again. Of course, you must have space. You don't have to be, as I told you before, uh, too many wineries, when the new vintage comes, they have to bottle the old vintages. So in terms of opportunities, they lose the possibility really to listen to their wine. There is more press by logistic. 
one of the reasons why we have 5,000 square meters for 70,000 bottles that, as I told you, for many people is a crazy decision, uh, is really to have this kind of possibilities, the time, the time to decide and not the logistic. It seems to me when I taste that the wines from 2001 and, and later seem a little more topped up than the 80s, and maybe it's my imagination. But Yes, because of course we know that uh, oxygen could be a disaster. So as I told you before, the wines need, need oxygen, but in the right proportion, like a water for a flower. But we have to be very careful because uh, um, before we didn't know all the data that today are clear. So to fill up is absolutely important. You always have to your barrel uh, full. Now we are, everybody's much more careful. So my big question for you, this is my riddle, <laughs> is you have one barrel of Grambusi and how do you top it up? Because uh, we have uh, one barrel, but we always have a part, uh, a barrel of, uh, let's say, two, three hectoliters, a part in which we take the juice to top the big one. Okay. I always. feel like I just learned a secret No, 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 there. no. This, this always. Because uh, <laughs> otherwise, you are right. Could be <laughs> a problem. I don't know. We produce the Grammousia. Then uh, two or 300 uh, liters are apart just to top. Otherwise, uh, it could be a problem. And that's in Damigiana or? We tend to use uh, Damigianas. Yes. Three or four, four Damigianas, sometimes five. Yes. Because the wine is there and uh, it, it can help us to fill up. And then it's Slavonian oak, Pote. Slavonian oak, yes. We, we work with a barrel cooper called uh, Garbellotto. Some of the older cooperage, do you go in and kind of take the layer out? Uh, you mean if, if we scrape? Yeah, scrape uh, the inside. The first job that I did when I was five years old was to scrape barrels because I was slim. If I ask now my son to do this, I think the police will come uh, before my wife will kill me, but uh, I think the police will come and then take me in a jail for, I don't know, 30 years. But it was very common in that period. A lot of people did that. It was five years old and uh, we have to enter in this uh, little door and we, I scrape. It takes one, one and a half hour. And uh, this was one of the secrets why uh, I'm in, with, with my two brothers was easy to, because the, the, the two people outside the barrel are my two brothers. You know, I'm the youngest, so I have to <laughs> work. And uh, no, but it was funny, really. We were, I was five, my, my, and my brothers were just a little older than me. But the first thing we do, my father said, that we have to scrape the barrel because the tartrates, they could close the pore. And so if you scrape a little bit, you get free the, the pour again, but you have not to be so aggressive. Otherwise, you go on the green side of the barrel. And this uh, could be an issue in terms of, again, having a green uh, also influence on the wine. So for the different Barolo, do you use press wine or is it all free-run juice? Honestly speaking, uh, for the crew, no. We prefer, and maybe for the base Barolo, the, the press part we, we, we put there. So free run for the cruise yeah. and Grambusia too. Of course. Because yeah. it has a density to them, but I think that's from the grape variety and the yields. The yields, I think, is the biggest thing. As I told you, with the Romirasco, with Chicala, we are more than three, three hectares and we are always around four, five, six thousand, depends. So we try to be very careful on the yield. But it's uh, more also selecting the vines that we think... Uh, they could perform in that vintage. So this kind of freedom for us is absolutely important. So when you propagate fine material, do you do it 
just within each vineyard or do you move to different vineyards? We try to stay inside the crew because we like to think that we are not losing the authentic uh, stamp. So we prefer to do that, stay inside the crew and stay with the muscle. So we take the, the year before and then we, we will reuse, yes. And in terms of the crews and then Grand Busia, as they age, do you see a different curve for them? I mean, obviously vintages are different. Uh, the Grand Busier is always the one that asks more time, but usually the one that is more open because, as I told you, the soil is with this more sand, magnesium, manganese is the Colonello. And then Chicala, then Romirasco, and then Grambusia. And some vintages could be the opposite. Uh, you know that many times in the very warm vintages, sometimes uh, the one that is, uh, has a, you know, a different kind of exposure that usually in classic is not outstanding, in the very warm one uh, is the one that performed better. So, but let's say in an unusual vintage, I will start to open the Colonello, then after some years, Chicala, Romierasco, and the last will be the Grand Busia. So your crews are all part of the larger crew of Busia. <laughs> yes. How should I understand Busia as a place and then your crews within it? I mean, the differences. We have uh, Busia Soprana, where all are my crews. That means uh, up Busia. Because there's a Busia Sotana. A Busia Sotana. That's, and that's different. Yes. There are two, two, two different. Uh, I am very lucky because my crew, uh, Romirasco, Cicale, and Colonello, are the highest hill of the classic Busia Soprana. Many people, they ask me and they are afraid. They say, oh, but why Busia is so big? To me, I don't feel that this kind of pressure. I mean, uh, it's like to go in Bordeaux and say, why there's a Margot of 30 euros and why there's Chateau Margot? different reasons, different ways. So the Busia is a large um, MGA, but uh, I'm proud to be in Busia. There are bottles of the Barolo Busia end of the 19th century. The Vigna Colonnello was, uh, the former owner was a colonel of the Napoleon army, the legend said. So Busia is big because Busia offers plenty of possibilities. And I understand that for many journalists, they say, ah, okay, but, you know, it's so big, there's no, no possibility to understand. I mean, but I don't feel so much this pressure on, on I don't think that there's a map that makes a wine. I think that uh, in Busia, we were very lucky. Already in the end of the 19th century, there were bottles of Busia that uh, were sold in California. And so, by the Arnulfo family. So I, I, I think that uh, this is a, big privilege. In Busia, there are many uh, nice uh, hills, and uh, Busia is simply a largest extension with more options, and uh, so there are many producers that they could uh, spread the message of Busia, and to me, it's an advantage, not a disadvantage. So another famous vineyard in Manforte is Ginestra. G yes, yes, Ginestra, yes. And... Uh, how would you compare that to Busia? If I were trying to understand, Monforte is a bigger region. Ginestra is, uh, in my opinion, a crew with power. It's more close to an idea of Serralunga, in my opinion. In, in Busia, you have more this mix, this uh, uh, combination between um, 
a very interesting tanning structure, but also this hint of floral, this hint of crisp. So in Busia, I love to focus on, on the fruit. But when you say Ginestra, to me, it's heaven too. So, but I think it's a little bit more male versus the, the feminine. Busia, to me, is a little bit more, fem- a little bit more feminine versus the, the, the Ginestra. So it depends very much also on the style of the, of the crew that you like. But, uh, so you mentioned before at the beginning of this interview the Zabodano family. Yes. And they had vines in Busia. Yes. And where were those vines? Because that family no longer exists. Yeah, no. The vines were on, on the bottom uh, of um, Cru de Cicala and Colonello. But, you know, in that period, many, many owners. So maybe you could have a piece here, a piece there. But yes, there was just uh, close to, to, to my crew. Yes. So Cicala and Colonello. On the bottom, yes. Do you own those vines now, the Zabodano no, vines? No, 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 just a, just a little part, just a little part, not 100% owned by us. And Zabodano was famous for kind of co-creating Brolochinato. Yes. And Manforte Brolochinato yes, in particular. Yes, very famous for that, yes. And your dad made a Brolochinato produced at the winery that he used to give to people as gifts. Yes. Was there any connection there? Or? No, of course, I, I'm sure, but this is my idea, that... My father was inspired in part also by Pico Light Zabaldano. So he was keen on doing a Barolo Chinato that already my grandfather did. But of course, when you have the possibility to have uh, Zabaldano in the same village, I'm sure he will do its best to taste. Well, to know the, the recipe, I don't think so, because uh, we, we, still my father was very jealous. We have stopped to produce the, the Barolo Chinato because uh, the recipe was in his, in his head. He never decided to write because he said, uh, I think it's something in my... And we stopped to produce Barolo Chinato because we want to honor what he did and not to make a stupid copy now that I'm sure will be not the same. And so for him... To, to have the chance to speak with uh, people like Zabaldano, I think, was the, the best uh, uh, desire. Because when you, when you like to produce something like a Barolo Chinato and you have a master like Zabaldano, I think that uh, could be absolutely a nice possibility to, to, have, to exchange some information. But my father was also very lucky because already my grandfather produced the Barolo Chinato, like many other producers here. But Zabaldano, yes, was one of the most, together with the other incredible master, uh, Capellano. When your dad would drink Barolo Chinato, how would he take it? Did he put a, a peel of citrus in it? Did he drink it on ice or leave the bottle open for a long time? The, the Barolo Chinato, my father loved to have uh, with uh, black chocolate. Not milk, eh? black chocolate. He always like after the dinner. Or, of course, to share with the people when they came here. But Barolo Chinato with black chocolate is unbelievable. So it was the way. Then it could also happen that during summer, but not my father, more, more the kids, more us, we had a little bit of water with ice and, the, and the, just a hint of Barolo Chinato, but it was more the kids' way of, of enjoying because it was a good way to have a small amount because, of course, when you are 10 years old, uh, it's not, not so easy to, to drink Barolo and have this incredible taste with just it. But my father, no, never do that. He just, he loved to have Barolo with black chocolates. Your dad was, I believe, a pretty popular guy locally. And many people would come to see him and to taste and from other regions too and writers. And I have heard, although it's before my era because your, your dad died in 2012 and I never met him. 
but I've heard that many personalities would come to be in the tasting room. And I was just curious if you remember some of the people who came through, if they left an impression on you. My father, first of all, had a lot of friends. He enjoyed life, but his best uh, hobby was to play cards. <laughs> so every, every Sunday, you, you will find him in, in Monforte in a restaurant called uh, the Grappolo d'Oro. And uh, he was always there playing cards. So, uh, yes, like, like other producers uh, had the possibility to, to meet um, interesting persons. But uh, my father was very jealous about uh, these people. And he always told us, never tell that this person has come and visit me. Because for him, it was a way to be uh, not loyal with this person. Okay, uh, sometimes uh, there were some famous actors, some, but what, what my father always told me said, we don't have to tell that this person is here. Otherwise, we will betray his friendship because it seems that we use that to tell the people that. So I am sorry, but I want to honor this uh, in, in, instead of telling you that this guy came. Or that, because in my opinion, I really now that I'm 43, I really, oh, on that period, I said, no, Papa, why we don't say that it's coming? Well, also with my friends, so I'm going to, and then I, he told me that, and I never, I never, but now at 43, I really understand. And so we don't have to betray their friendship. And I'm sure that he was right, because if we started to say that that guy is coming, that guy will stop to come. Uh, I, it was unbelievable how I really remember my father with those persons. And sometimes were people that uh, if you just maybe, in, if you have to meet them, you will have an, uh, 30 people before that they will tell you, now have you a partner? That people together with my father, they were uh, tasting the Barolo Chinato. My father sometimes will say, you are wrong. You are. <laughs> and then I saw uh, the car with the bodyguards and all the other people. And to me, now this was a magic thing. I, and I understand what my father said, no. No, you don't, please, please, no, it was more like to say, you must not say that. So my father has passed away and I would like to honor this, uh, this advice. Giacomo Canterno would like to honor the legacy of his father, Aldo Canterno, in Manforte. Thank you very much for being here today. It was my pleasure and thank you to invite me. Giacomo Canterno of Aldo Canterno in Manforte in Piemonte. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.